Hello and welcome along to part two of the Vinnie White podcast in India. I am Vinnie White and I am in India, hence the name. I've got a cup of coffee and I might cough up, cough up some horrible mucus every now and then because that such is the case of being in any built up urban environment in India. But I'll do my best to pause the recording while I hack up a good one. Um, what a great invite to listen to the rest of this. Uh, coming up, we will talk about the Taj Mahal in Agra. Unfortunately, there are some noises of building in the background. Um, basically, anywhere you go in India, unless you're in a field, there'll be someone next to you making some noise. I think the national sport here is to make as much noise as possible. And it is now, officially, as of yesterday, I ranked it at number one loudest country I've ever been to. It has overtaken Nicaragua. Like this is quiet. So. Hello. The other thing is, because there's so many people, there's always someone popping up. So I'm outside my hotel room, having a cup of coffee, sat down. And you find a quiet spot. Next thing you know, someone just pops up. Hello, sir, how are you? Would you like some shoes? I just got given a pair of slippers. So there you are. Um, right, let's, let's move on with this. So today I'm going to talk about the Taj Mahal. What is it? Why is it there? What was it like to visit? And any tips if you're thinking of going. I'm also going to talk about uh, trains and I'm going to talk about getting to Jaipur where I'm recording this. I was going to record this live from the Taj Mahal um, but unfortunately I couldn't because you're not allowed any recording devices. I probably could have got away with it but I... Um, I had a guide who was really helpful and it would be a bit weird to go, hang on mate, I'm just going to talk into this device. Um, so yeah, there's no live recording of that, but I can remember it pretty well because it was only a couple of days ago, even though I had a couple of whiskies last night, it's still pretty clear. So, so the Taj Mahal, well, what a place. So you get there, uh, in my case by train to Agra, and then I did a recording from Agra. Uh, but I hadn't yet been to the delights of the Taj Mahal. The Taj Mahal is the number one tourist site in India and it is arguably the most beautiful building in the world. And it is just unbelievably spectacular. So do you remember when we were talking last time, I was talking about the fort in Delhi, the Red Fort. And the name, for, the Red Fort is a bit misleading really. It, it, was, it was Shan Jahan, the emperor in the uh, early 1600s. It was his boudoir for all things luxurious. And he, he had this red fort. And the, and the name, as I say, is a bit misleading because although it is a fortress, it was really a, a walled village of about 3,000 people, all under his rule. Um, he also ruled the whole of what we have now as India and uh, I would imagine Pakistan and Bangladesh and a few other bits as well and through a system of taxation he became extraordinarily wealthy and he had very debonair tastes shall we say so yeah as I mentioned he lived in this fort and he had this absolutely off the charts luxurious lifestyle and I've also found it quite interesting that um, how India's changed over the last couple of hundred years I'll give you an example so homosexual sex was allowed for the first time last year here in India 
Um, until then, it was illegal for homosexuals to have sex and it could be punished, right? Now, gay people, like the rest of us, like a bit of nookie. And uh, in my somewhat liberal view, what on earth would ever be a place for us to stop them doing it? But, let me tell you something. You might think, well, that's just Eastern culture, isn't it? Of course it was outlawed. Do you know what? That Shan Jahan is documented, as well as having a number of wives, he also had um, quite a few gay lovers. And he speaks openly and without embarrassment. Uh, there's plenty of documentation that he was very in love with a particular young man who he quite regularly um, spent many nights with in his mirrored ceilinged boudoir with all those drapes I was talking about from all around the world, the silks and uh, all the silvers and coppers that would hang these amazing artworks. Um, and the just sheer wealth was just unsurpassed and unheard of in those days. Um, and it, it did have uh, gay lovers. And you know who outlawed it? It was the British. Yeah, when the British took over here, bastards. <laughs> I'll put my Canadian hat on for this one. I'm dual identity, so uh, that's the benefit of being able to switch. Yeah, Brit, evil. Um, but yeah, when, when the British took over here, they uh, enforced a lot of laws that of course were active in the United Kingdom at the time, one of them being outlawing of homosexual sex. And, and it sort of dressed up as some sort of bizarre indecency. So it's really interesting, if you look back through Asian culture, and it's not just here in India, it's actually across, it's across the East, there was absolutely nothing wrong, and uh, there was, it was never considered to be immoral in any way to have gay lovers and gay sex. And then the British came along and ruined it. And then when the British left, um, there was this sort of hangover, really, and it's still being cleaned up today. There's a lot of sort of colonial rule within, interwoven within modern law that needs to be sorted out because we've moved on. So as a Brit, I suppose I'd better say sorry for, um, well, where do we start? That and uh, taking a great deal of your wealth from this subcontinent. It's amazing how forgiving people are. I went to a quite high-end restaurant in Agra and they had, uh, as we often see in the West, uh, cushions on the couches while you wait for your table uh, with British flags on them. And I thought, wow, imagine that. You guys are pretty forgiving after what we've done to you. So amazing how times move on. All right, bit of a tangent there. Let's get back on it. So this guy, Shan Jahan, um, as well as having gay lovers, had predominantly female lovers. And there was one lover in particular that he had that he just was absolutely infatuated and in love with. And she was the baby machine, really, because he had numerous wives. I think, I think four, don't quote me on that, but certainly plenty of wives, four at any one time. And there was only one wife that provided him children. And I, th I don't know if that was by design. I'm not entirely sure of that, but nonetheless, she was the kiddie factory, and the kiddie factory, she took that job pretty bloody seriously because she had 14 children by him, all right? And her name was uh, Mutaz Mahal. And uh, as I say, 14 children, and in 1631, that 14th child, because she was only 38 at the time, so she, she, all her life she'd been pregnant, that 14th child killed her, right? And uh, she died in, died in childbirth. And now, I'm not a doctor, but I'm going to suggest it might be something to do with the fact 
that she had 14. I don't know if we're designed to have that many, right? So she was banging them out left, right and centre, uh, much to Shah Jahan's delight. And when she died at the age of 38, 14 kids later, he was absolutely devastated. And rumour has it that he turned grey virtually overnight. And it was at that point he said, right, well, I've got all this money. I really want to document her life and give something to her and uh, to mark her death. Honestly, you, you, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, could you not find anywhere quieter? No. I walked around for half an hour. This is the quietest spot I could find. I'll go to the hotel room if you want in a minute. Anyway, so her death is said to have turned his hair grey virtually overnight. And so construction of the Taj began the following year. So, you know that Taj, if, if you've, I mean, obviously everyone's seen pictures of the Taj Mahal. But let's be very clear about this, and I feel a bit stupid because I didn't actually know this until my arrival here in India. No one ever lived in it, ever, and it was never, ever supposed to be that way. The Taj Mahal is, and let's be perfectly clear about this, a mausoleum. It's said to have been built mostly in eight years, but there's a lot to it, and there's a whole complex involving gardens and enormous gates. The gates themselves are just absolutely outstanding just walking through the gates before you even get into the complex. So the whole thing took about 22 years. Now, he was older than her um, by quite a long way, as you'd probably expect. And even though it was 22 years later that it was finally finished, this amazing mausoleum in her honour, he did get to see it finished. So this is just somewhere where he could bury the love of his life, the baby machine that was, Shah Jahan's wife, Mumtaz Mahal, and there she lies today. He now also lies next to her, um, which I think is what he always wanted, but there are a few complications to this story. Let's first of all describe this thing. So you walk through, you pay about five pounds to get in, what's that, about seven US, eight US, nine US dollars, I can't remember. I'm in rupees now, I'm very confused. Um, but yeah, so under a tenner, whatever. You don't pay much to get in, considering it's a UNESCO World Heritage Site and arguably the most spectacular building ever built by humans in history. And I don't say that loosely, I am actually of that opinion myself. It is utterly outstanding. The Taj Mahal itself stands on a raised marble platform and at the northern end, uh, it's, it's built on this essentially an oriental garden uh, with its back to the Yamuna River. Now, I say its back is to the Yamuna River. The thing is with the Taj Mahal, it is the per perfect vision of symmetry. So it's exactly the same, no matter which of the four sides you look at it, which in itself is absolutely magnificent. But there's other things about its architecture that are so clever and so ahead of its time, considering we're talking the early 1600s. As a, as a Muslim, there's a script written up the side of the Taj Mahal. And there's little details, like for example, it looks perfectly readable all the way up, even though it probably stretches about 30 meters high, this script. And that's because the script at the top is written in larger font than it is at the bottom. So it's little details like that that just give it this absolutely amazing majestic stance. And the fact it's built out of pure white marble is just so clean. And it's sort of quite jarring in comparison to everything else here in India, because everything in India is colour and colour and more colour, whether you'd be eating chicken tikka or looking at a lady in a sari. It is so 
drenched in colour, this entire continent, that to have something so simple and white is actually quite, for want of a less pompous word, a juxtaposition. There you go, there's my original graphic design skills coming out in uh, my art college days. Anyway, so you look at this majestic, empowering, ridiculous, omnipresent marble cathedral, essentially, for want of a better word, and you've got these four minarets all towering around it, just slightly less height than the main dome of the um, mausoleum itself. And uh, it's recently been cleaned, because obviously with the pollution, there was no way that it was going to stay white. So they make a bit of an effort here in India. They've now said that you can't drive tuk-tuks within something like a kilometre of it. So you can get electric vehicles to it or uh, rickshaws. And um, they've made a real effort to clean it. And the, the actual methodology of cleaning it is to use an ancient face pack of mud, which they, um, they put all over the surface. Uh, whilst surrounding it with bamboo scaffolding and then um, slowly wash it off and it takes all that horrible toxic sediment with it. So I, I'm very fortunate to have visited it in a time where it's, it's, it's majestic beauty uh, because it's just recently been cleaned. It's so tall and this translucent white marble is also carved with flowers and inlaid with thousands of semi-precious stones in beautiful patterns. So it's got this like perfect exercise and symmetry with the four identical faces of the Taj uh, featuring really impressive like vaulted arches embellished with scroll work and quotations as I say uh, a lot of it come out of the Quran and it's all written in this beautiful calligraphic font so this bulbous dome tops the whole thing um, you've seen the pictures I won't bore you with the description but frankly the feeling that it gives you is really quite something. And I think the fact that it was never meant, you know, like any anywhere you see in Europe, um, palaces, not to put them down, but they're all very purposeful. They were for the rich leaders of the time who had all the power and the money to live in, right? And this was just what turns out to be the most arguably impressive man-made building in the world. One of the seven wonders of the world, and rightly so was never meant for anything more than just a relic to this lady and a place where she could lie. And indeed, there she is. And you can go round inside the Taj Mahal and get a full tour of the place and you can see the tomb. And indeed, him as he wanted, lying alongside. But it didn't always work out that way because the thing is, you know those 14 children that she had? Well, one of them took him over so after he finished this building, it wasn't enough. And it never is, is it, for the rich and powerful? So he said at that point, right lads, that's a cracking little white number I've got going there. I love all that marble that I dug up and floated down the river from various mines in Rajasthan. What I really want is a black one. And his next project was to build a black version of the Taj Mahal. I'm not sure if it was supposed to be the same size, but it was supposed to be absolute grandeur once again. And it was going to be on the other side of the river. Problem is, the only place you can get black marble, or at least it was at the time, is Belgium. So he said, well, I'm pretty good at this whole import stuff. I'm going to just go ahead and commission a shit ton of marble from Belgium, and I'm going to build another Taj Mahal on the other side of the river. 
and his son, quite rightly, I think, said, hang on, Dad, I think you've gone a bit potty. You've already got that red fort in, uh, in uh, Delhi. You've already got a whole shit ton of forts around Agra, where we currently are with this Taj Mahal thing you've already built to uh, my mum. Big up. You've done a great job. Let's stop there, you absolute nutter. Let's not get out of hand with the whole black number on the other side of the river. Plus, big fan of the white, looks clean, looks tidy. I reckon black might look a bit evil. Let's not do that. I'm, I'm, I'm now slightly open to interpretation on this one. I might be making this last bit slightly up. But yes, he did want this black fort and his son did step in and said, don't be a nutter. And at that point there was an argument, and I think there was an argument about a lot more, obviously the control of the entire area. And at that point, his son took over from Shah Jahan, and his name, uh, I've always struggled with, but let's have a go at it, Aurangzeb, Aurangzeb, let's call him that, it was something along those lines. Aurangzeb decided at that point that he would imprison his father in Agra Fort, which is where I'm going to go and visit later today. I'm in Agra at the moment, and I'm going to go up to the fort, uh, which is this absolutely monolithic, giant uh, fort on the top of a mountain top, overlooking Agra, and indeed overlooking the Taj Mahal. So that's where he was put to spend the rest of his days, and I think he was in his 70s then, and he had to look out of a window at his creation the Taj Mahal, knowing fully well that when he died he would be buried there, knowing fully well that this amazing, certainly unique construction where his wife lay, he couldn't even visit. And when he died in 1666, Shah Jahan was buried alongside his beloved Mumtaz. And that's where he lies today, in that absolutely, utterly outstanding, beyond exquisite, quite indescribable, white marble beast on a huge white marble platform surrounded by gates that are in themselves thoroughly outrageous in their giant design of red sandstone. So that, my friends, is the Taj Mahal and you should come here. Uh, it costs about five quid to get in. They put some ridiculous slippers on you so that you don't damage the marble, marble when you're walking around and indeed you give it a good buff as you're walking around and uh, of course you can get a guide for very little money. Actually he's free, you just give him a tip at the end of it and you can uh, find out more about this utterly outstanding building. If you do come to India, you will have to come for obvious reasons because it, because it is off the charts exquisite. So that is the Taj Mahal. I now am going to go up to the Agra Fort as I say. Um, in upcoming episodes I'm going to talk more about where I am and some of the history and stuff but also I want to talk about the traffic because it's fucking ridiculous. Um, so I think at one point I might actually let you witness some of the sounds, if possible, of being on the back of a tuk-tuk and the near-death experience that is being in India. Um, I suppose I should probably tell you about the weather. It's a bit boring after all that, isn't it? Uh, it's very cold at night, about two or three degrees, and very warm by day, about 25 degrees, something like that. Um, and it is very friendly, and I have to say, as far as I can see so far, very safe place. No one locks up their bicycles. Uh, well, actually, they do lock up their bicycles, but they don't lock up their um, mopeds, which they certainly do in London. And um, I haven't seen any smash and grabs or any anything dodgy like that. Obviously, I have got my um, stuff pretty close to my body, but generally speaking, actually, it's a, a pretty safe place to be. And um, 
I have noticed that there is a definite dodgy undercurrent, a sort of, oh my God, there's a bloke listening to me. Oh God, I have no idea. There's a guy sat right behind me. Oh, that's weird. I think he's been listening. When did he get there? I think he's been listening to all this. Mate, download the podcast from vinniewhite.co.uk. Right, I've got, I've done a runner into my hotel room, which probably is a little bit better acoustically, um, because that guy behind me was freaking me out a little bit, actually. I'm not really sure where he came from, but he was sat, like, right up in my grill. Um, so I've done a bit of a runner, and now I'm in the relative uh, sanctuary, that is, sanctity of my hotel room. So, yeah, that's, that's actually leads me to a really interesting point. People. There's one point, what is there, four? 1.4 billion, I think I said, um, which is quite a lot of people. And as a result, um, the, the sense of space that you get, the, sort of, the space that you give other people without thinking about it, the sort of natural aura that we all have is completely different. I remember when I moved from, London, well, from Southern England to um, Ottawa in Canada, I noticed that a lot of people stood a lot further apart um, when in a lineup for, I don't know, a supermarket or whatever in the aisle, there'd be a far larger space around everyone because there is more space and there's less people and that's just a sort of cultural norm. And it took me quite a long time living in Canada to, to adjust to the fact that people have this sort of bigger aura, a bigger bubble around themselves. Here in India, uh, there, is, there is none. I mean, I felt yesterday when I was in an archaeological site yesterday, I felt someone's, um, well, how can I put this? I can't really put this any other way. There was a man, in fairness, it was packed in there, and there was a single file queue to get out, and there was a man behind me. I felt his junk. I felt his junk. I didn't need to feel his junk. I didn't want to feel his junk, but he was so pressed up against me, I felt things that I didn't really want to feel. And Now, this could be quite a problem, of course, for people like me, but more so, of course, it's quite a problem for women, and it's... Um, a country that has had been plagued with problems of um, being felt up on buses. Indeed, if you're a female traveller here, you may be advised not to go on uh, packed public transport because, it's, I mean, it's hard to say whether they're doing it on purpose or not, really. I mean, the problem is there's just no room and there's no room allowed. And also their system of queuing is somewhat different. Here, it's, um, <laughs> to put it abruptly, called... Um, Let's get to the front. Let's have a crack at that then, shall we? Who are you? Doesn't really matter. In I go. Yeah, so people's bubbles are very much a different size. And uh, as a result, you will become quite often, whether you be walking through a bazaar buying stuff or whether you're queuing up for a train ticket or whether you're, I don't know, queuing up for a, a, a cup of coffee, you will be barged, you will feel elbows and worst case scenario, you might even feel something that you don't want to feel. This is life in India. I, I think this is just the way things are. And when you look at the, the buses and the amount of people they can wedge on them, standing up, it's wedged in there. It's a, I, I, would, I wanted to say like sardines, but really, um, a can of sardines, you can normally whack another sardine in there. Good luck fitting another Indian on one of those buses because it's, it's not going to happen. So I find that you 
become quite tired quite often because it's not just that it's the sights and the smells and the whole lot so smells of course there's spice in the air there's beautiful uh, curries being cooked there's street food everywhere there's various incenses and it's just gorgeous then you'll go around a corner and someone's had a shit in the street and there's a big poo and it smells and then you'll go around another corner and there's a massive pile of garbage and there's a cow just chowing down just having a good old munch on whatever the hell it can find in a pile of crisp packets and empty bottles. It's really, really intense on every possible level. So you've got, the, that's, that's the sort of, you know, um, smells taken care of. Then of course, you've got the sounds. People shout, they just shout whatever they want, whenever they want to. And of course, the horns, they have to shout louder than the incessant, relentless fucking car horns. So, as a result, the noise is just this permanent din, a cacophony of absolute apoplectic noise. And being in a tuk-tuk, listening to the and the horns and the bloody shouting and the music and the wailing of the distant mosque, if you're in a sort of Arabic area, is just... So yesterday, it all became too much and my tuk-tuk got stuck in traffic and it was blah, 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 and and bring, ring, and blah, 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 and I just couldn't cope and I got bunged in 100 rupees and I got off in the middle of nowhere and I managed to, by pure fortune, find a bar and I ordered a very large whiskey and downed it and I was shaking. I was shaking with anger. Not at the tuk-tuk driver, not at anyone in particular, just the anxiety that builds up when you're dying. And I'm not, I say that, right? And I know you're thinking, oh, that's bloody exaggerating, isn't he? Bit of hyperbole. When people kill themselves, a bit dark, but let's be honest, one of the methods is get in your car, sticking a hosepipe from your exhaust and then sticking it in your window and then waiting until those noxious fumes eventually knock you out and kill you. Well, let me tell you something. There are times when you're stuck in traffic, in Delhi and Agra at least, and apparently the rest of Northern India, when you're dying because you're stuck on a tuk-tuk and the acrid, poisonous, blue smoke is chugging in and you can't get away. And it gets to the point where you start feeling faint and weak and your joints start aching and you think, hang on a minute, isn't this the first stages of death? Meanwhile, somehow, the tuk-tuk driver hasn't even got a cloth over his face, hasn't even got a mask on. I'm breathing through a scarf. I've now taken to putting earplugs in, which I know makes me sound like an absolute princess, but honestly, the headaches that you get on those things are so intense that, all right, I'm not brought up here, so I'm just finding an easy way out. So I've got kind of everything covered. I've got my shades on because the sights are a bit much and there's dust in my eyes. I've got a scarf over my nose so I don't have to breathe. I've got earplugs in so I can't hear the noise. And still, I feel like I'm dying. And it was at that point yesterday I had to get off. And don't get me wrong, like I'm complaining. I'm loving life. It is spectacularly different to my normal day. So that's exactly why I'm here and it is great. But I guess my point is, it's not for the faint of heart. India is off the charts bonkers. So, you know, be prepared. (laughs) And if you uh, fancy a bit of an easier life, maybe get off the tuk-tuks and hire a permanent driver, as a lot of Westerners do when they visit here.
So that's India so far. More to report, no doubt, as I continue my travels. Next stop, I'm in Jaipur, and yeah, I'll report as well, uh, heading south soon to Kerala, past Goa on a, on a plane. So it's going to be a completely different part of India, a completely different climate, and apparently a completely different world. This is already a different world to what I'm used to. India is fucking great. It's absolutely amazing in every possible way. Get yourself here. You'll love it. Catch you later.